This is the Sleeper Hold Podcast. Welcome to the second episode of the Sleeper Hold Podcast, where there are no disqualifications on the topics and falls count anywhere. I am your host, Priest, and we have a great episode for you. But first, a few shout-outs. For those of you who are returning after our first episode, thank you. For those of you who are just now joining us, welcome and enjoy. Another thing to add some humor, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a gamer and a bit of a nerd. So when I was playing one of my games, it's an MMO called Ashron's Call. It's a bit of an oldie, but still a goodie. I told my little guild about the podcast and everything else, and one of the guys there on a few days told me to meet up with him at the guild ba- mansion, base, whatever you want to call it. He changed his costume to look like a wrestler, is what he told me. So I went to go check it out. This guy, to put it in best phrases, he looked like Ultimo Dragon, but in all white. If you guys don't know who Ultimo Dragon is, I highly encourage you to look him up. He was a pretty cool luchador, and he was actually with the uh, WCW for a while. It was really awesome, and so I told him I'd have to definitely mention that. So here's my shout-out to you. Great costume. Also, I just wanted to remind all of our listeners, especially the talent who do listen and put on amazing shows to our local wrestling companies, that WWE has officially opened up auditions for their Tough Enough series. To submit your video application to wwetoughenough.com and listen up, guys. If you are thinking about auditioning, let us know. We would love to talk to you about it. Maybe even we'll do like a special podcast devoted just to the Tough Enough competitors and people who audition. It'd be great to have you guys here to talk to and see what you guys uh, did and if you got any word back. Also, I just want to know, if you do make it, let me know so I can know who to look forward to seeing on there and who to root for when I do watch it on the USA Network. Now, speaking of the WWE, we are five days away from WWE's Extreme Rules, and it looks like it's going to end up being a great show. I'll definitely have my predictions posted by Friday. Now, let's get down to business. We're going to continue with part two of our series, The Eras. And I know some of you may find this boring, but I promise you, we'll be doing more than just history down the road. For me, I'm actually finding this more interesting and amazing the more I uncover about the history of wrestling. I honestly thought it was going to be boring, but it's some pretty cool stuff, guys. Let me just make one more thing very clear. I am not too familiar with other companies outside of WWF and WCW, but I will try my best to touch base on them a little bit here and there, just so we can make sure we have some details, but I may not be so in-depth or as interesting as can be. So if you do know more about it, feel free to talk to me about it. Send me a message. Comment on the website. You can easily find my Facebook and my Twitter off of the website. TheSleeperHold.com Alright, so enough of all that. Let's get down to business with today's episode as it is going to be a triple threat on topics for the series. 
Entering now as our first topic of the evening, the dawn of ECW. The year is 1992, and a man by the name of Todd Gordon just bought out the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, only to rebrand it as Eastern Championship Wrestling. During this time, it was part of National Wrestling Alliance, or NWA. By 1994, Jim Crockett of NWA was ready to begin promoting his company once more since his non-compete agreement with Ted Turner had finally expired. He was wanting to put his name into the hat against WWF and WCW. To start things off with a bang, Crockett and Gordon wanted to host a tournament for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in the home arena of Eastern Championship Wrestling, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. NWA's president, Dennis Corluzzo, was not too fond of this and felt that Crockett and Gordon were up to no good. The tournament was allowed, but only under Corluzzo being the one to oversee the events. Gordon was not happy with this and thus began planning to make Eastern Championship Wrestling branch away from the NWA. Todd Gordon began to hatch a plan with Paul Heyman, who recently left WCW to make Eastern Championship Wrestling stand out and branch from the NWA. The final match would be Shane Douglas against Two Cold Scorpio. Douglas was set to win, which was ironic since Douglas and Coraluzzo were not on good terms. Coraluzzo had publicly talked down Douglas for being a bad risk to the company and famous for no-shows when booked. He didn't want Douglas booked if he could help it. It was this bit of detail that Paul Heyman was able to use to help encourage Shane Douglas to do the single act that would separate Eastern Championship Wrestling from NWA. Upon winning the NWA World Heavyweight title, Shane Douglas threw down the title and publicly stated that the NWA is a dead promotion that had died seven years ago. From there, he raised the Eastern Championship Wrestling title and declared it as a World Heavyweight Championship and the only real world title left in professional wrestling. This was making a daring jab at not only NWA, but World Championship Wrestling and World Wrestling Federation. Now, Paul Heyman has been quoted saying during an interview in 1998 that, and I quote, The National Wrestling Alliance was old school when old school wasn't hip anymore. We wanted to set our mark. We wanted to break away from the pack. We wanted to let the world know that we weren't just some independent promotion. The NWA committee was livid and demanded to strip the franchise Shane Douglas from both the NWA title and the ECW title. The following edition of the NWA ECW programming, Todd Gordon would address the situation by clearly stating that the committee does have the power to force the title to be revoked from Shane Douglas for both companies. But they decided to close out Eastern Championship Wrestling. Instead, in its place, they would begin Extreme Championship Wrestling, 
where they would recognize the franchise Shane Douglas as their champion and welcome any wrestlers to join ECW and challenge him for the title. In his statement, he finished off with, and I quote, This is ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling, changing the face of professional wrestling. Here at the Sleeper Hold Podcast, we strongly believe in helping others. Therefore, we have decided to feature a charity every quarter that we are supporting and invite you to support as well. Following his induction into this year's WWE Hall of Fame, we have decided to make our first charity, Connor's Cure. Head on over to our website at thesleeperhold.com and click on Connor's Cure on the right side of the page for more information. So now running for the top spot were three different developing companies. The Rookie, ECW, had just came into the spotlight by boldly stating it was not only the only company with a real-world title remaining, but by stating they were going to change the face of professional wrestling. For a while, they would be treated the same way WCW had been for so long, without a second thought. But soon, WCW was about to make the WWF reconsider how little of a threat they took them for, and it was all thanks to one man. Let's grapple with our next topic of this episode, WCW's Eric Bischoff era. Now, I grew up changing the channels back and forth between WCW and WWF, but I only became truly sold on WCW once Eric Bischoff made the remarkable changes needed for WCW. World Championship Wrestling was beyond struggling, as we mentioned in the last podcast. It was then that they decided to turn to a fresh and new creative mind to help them get to where they wanted to be. Former commentator Eric Bischoff had became the executive vice president of WCW. At first, it seemed Bischoff was not going to be the golden boy they had hoped for. But this was mainly due to him not having much creative control. It was still really in the hands of Dusty Rhodes and Ole Anderson. Along with this, WCW began to do tapings at the Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. Sounds like a good idea. It is what WWF had done, rather. Except they had stumbled upon some various problems where they would be taping for shows months in advance, you know, thus having the spoilers given to anyone who was present, which is really not good for business. And also, the problem was, if someone got injured before the airing of the show, it could completely ruin the whole setup they had just prepared. This is exactly what happened in one scenario where they filmed a match that involved Brian Pillman and Stone, well, before he was Stone Cold, Steve Austin against Arn Anderson and Paul Roma for the tag team title. Now, this was to set and be aired in August, but before August came around, Pillman would suffer a major injury that would take him out of the show for a while and had to leave Austin to tag up with Steven Regal. In 1994, WCW and Eric Bischoff would finally be dealt a good hand to get the company moving in the right direction. Turner gave Eric Bischoff the right to recruit talent and practically anything else he needed to make the company take on the World Wrestling Federation. So imagine if your boss tells you to go out there and hire the best people you can by any means necessary, necessary 
And here, while you're at it, here's a blank check. Just use it for what you need to to get them to sign up. And it wasn't just one blank check. It was a checkbook full so that way you could recruit as many big names as you possibly can. That's practically what happened for Bischoff. And although it was a successful move at the start, it would later be considered one of the most drastic and foolish moves Turner had decided upon. Still, though, this gave Bischoff a chance to hire some of the big names from World Wrestling Federation over to World Championship Wrestling. We're talking about names like Hulk Hogan, the Macho Man Randy Savage. So, I mean, even after Hogan's hiring, the following pay-per-view was another major success compared to previous ones for WCW. Bash at the Beach, it main-evented Ric Flair defending his title against Hulk Hogan. People had always wanted to see these people clash. Flair was a big name. Hogan was a big name. You're talking about the biggest pop you could possibly get at that time. The hype was so large, with both their names being on the main event, the company had such an incredible draw. It not only gave the company hope, but it still, it just wasn't enough. I mean, they had the hope, they had the, the money coming in, but for some reason they did not have that X factor, I guess you could call it. It was then that Eric Bischoff made a desperate move and asked to speak with Ted Turner in a private meeting. Turner did grant this request. Turner was feeling the pressure of failure in his investment. He did turn to Eric and asked him what they would need to do to get them back in the game and have a fighting chance against WWF. Bischoff responded with something he never thought Turner would give him. A slot for a WCW show on Monday to compete with Vince's WWF Monday Night Raw. Turner, he agreed with it, and thus WCW Monday Nitro was born. The show immediately took off, and this was truly when I started paying full attention to WCW as well as WWF. The show started out as only a one-hour-long show, but as the progress grew, it became a two-hour show, and after that, it became three hours, just like Raw. For the debut of Nitro, the show was hosted in the largest mall in the United States. We're talking the Mall of America. That helped Nitro even further. And during that same night, USA Network was having a U.S. Tennis Open on air instead of their usual WWF Monday Nitro, I'm sorry, Monday Night Raw. So think about this. Nitro had nobody to compete with on their debut show. You can't find the wrestling on USA? What are you going to do? Change channels, slip around. Oh, hey, look, there's another wrestling show. Boom. They got the attention they needed. Another great thing about this debut was another top star from the World Wrestling Federation jumped ship over to WCW, and none of the talent even had a clue. The total package, Lex Luger, had joined WCW and Everyone was amazed. At first, they all thought it was an inv invasion until they saw him standing there as one of the WCW rosters. In my opinion, 
This was the first blood drawn in the famous Monday Night Wars. Eric Bischoff wasn't done making an attack on the WWF. To, to show that he meant business, he pulled a lot of sneaky tricks. Due to the fact that many of the WWF Raw shows were previously filmed and Nitro was live, Bischoff would reveal the results of the WWF card during his live taping. Explain to people that there is no reason to change the channel now since they knew the results and that at least they were given something live when watching WCW. Bischoff would pull off other wild but successful ideas such as having the Giant and Hulk Hogan have their first battle in a monster truck sumo match. Yeah, you heard me right. Monster truck versus monster truck to see who could push the other outside of the circle. The next time these two would see each other was in a ring where the giant, now going by the name of Big Show, would win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship title against Hulk Hogan. One of the final straws for when McMahon would finally begin to realize that the WCW had really became a threat is when WCW had recruited Alundra Blaze, the current women's champion for WWF. Eric encouraged her to come on air with the WWF women's title in hand, denounce the WWF, and drop the belt into the trash while reclaiming her former name of Medusa. The war had begun, and it looked like WCW was not going to pull any punches to get under the skin of Vince McMahon and the WWF. Hey, Central Illinois, don't forget that on Saturday, April 25th, Penfall Wrestling Association is hosting their next show. It is at Lanfear High School Gym in Springfield, Illinois. They will be having their second annual Toga Steve Memorial Tournament. It honors the life and memory of Toga Steve Fisher by hosting a tournament very much like one of my old favorite pay-per-views, The King of the Ring. On top of this... There is a tag team turmoil match for the tag titles, so there's going to be some fun chaos there too. Also, Nosebleed Seats will be inducting some well-respected legends of the wrestling world into the 2015 Hall of Fame. Now if that isn't enough, stay tuned to our website, Facebook, or Twitter to find out about a contest you could enter at the show for a great prize. We will see you there. The early 90s are heating up to be the pivotal years of wrestling and sports entertainment. We have the new blood of ECW talking about how they are the new face of wrestling. And Eric Bischoff with the established WCW making direct blows at the WWF. What does this mean for the seasoned veteran of this triple threat, Vince McMahon and the WWF? Well, let's see if they can counter out of this and make a comeback as we review our third topic of this episode, World Wrestling Federation's New Generation Era. Now, the 90s were not all kind to Vince McMahon, especially early on. In 1991, many talents, including Hulk Hogan, Nails, and Roddy Piper, were to testify in court about purchasing steroids from WWF physician Dr. George Zahorin. Dr. Zahorin had recently been charged with illegal distribution of steroids, and about two years later, it was Vince McMahon who was being charged due to his connection with Dr. Zahorin. If he was to be found guilty, 
Vincent Kennedy McMahon would be charged not only a $500,000 fine, but face possibly eight years in prison. You like wrestling, boy? Come here. On July of 1994, the court trial had begun, and although Nails would testify that McMahon had tried to force him to take the drugs, many others, including Hulk Hogan, would say they were guilty of using steroids, but were never forced by Vince McMahon to take them. Vince was shortly after acquitted of all charges. Business for the WWF would take a hit when they would lose some of their well-established talents in 1993, such as Hulk Hogan, to the hands of Ted Turner. Vince decided it was time to focus on the younger, fresh talent of their roster. These talents would include names like Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, Diesel, Yokozuna, The Undertaker, Owen Hart, and Bret the Hitman Hart. They would become dubbed as the new generation of the WWF. Bret Hart, a personal favorite of mine since my childhood, had become one of the company's biggest draws. It was during a time he took a year break after a long 60-minute Ironman match against Shawn Michaels that another name would be added to the new generation roster. Formerly working with WCW and ECW, Steve Austin arrived to the WWF to win the King of the Ring tournament and win the fans over with his rugged and arguably charismatic persona. Austin was intended as a heel, but the fans were so greatly won over by him that he would eventually turn face for the company. The bad boys were what the fans were wanting. During this time, the Monday Night Wars had begun and many other names would be known to jump ship over to WCW and the checkbook of Ted Turner. We're talking about names like the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, formerly called Mr. Perfect, now called Kurt Henning, the Ravishing Rick Rude, and two others that we'll, we'll mention in the next episode as well. I want to kind of keep them as a small surprise for anybody who doesn't know the history. But one major person who jumped ship for me was Brett, the Hitman Hart. Now, Brett and his family were playing a role of a new faction that was called the New Hart Foundation. It involved Brett Hart, Owen Hart, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith, Brian Pillman, and manager Jimmy Hart, the Mouth of the South. They were ultimately playing a heel role of Canada versus America, where the Hearts would do pretty much anything and everything to insult America and embrace Canada. It was like, uh, America sucks, Canada's great, yada yada yada. Now for adults, this gimmick worked pretty well. But for kids like myself who really didn't get what the big deal was, we were still pretty big Heart fans through and through. Now that I'm older, I could see it, and I could see it was a good tactic on the WWF's part. But, yeah, I'm still a Bret Hart fan, no matter what he does. Bret was beginning to have his doubts and concerns over his professional career when the WCW began to offer him deals to jump ship as well. He was very loyal to Vince, and on various occasions, he would turn them down 
because of that loyalty, I mean, Vince was almost like another dad to him outside of Stu. And this all changed during the 1997 Survivor Series pay-per-view in Montreal. The match was with Shawn Michaels against Bret Hart when Bret Hart was the WWF champion. There had been some tension between the two superstars in the back as Vince wanted Bret to drop the title. And Bret didn't want to drop it on his home turf. You know, Montreal is his home, his family's there, all his old fans are there from back when he used to wrestle for his dad's company. I really can't blame him on that. He also was having an issue that he felt that Sean didn't really have much respect for him or the company that Vince was pulling together. And, I mean, let's face it, Sean was, and sometimes he still is on occasion, one arrogant son of a gun. The two did actually respect each other, especially when it came to in the ring. They just didn't really communicate this well. I mean, that caused a lot of tension. You have the more seasoned veteran and the young rookie, both very talented, both actually liked the idea about working together, but they just didn't know how to show it properly with each other. And this would later be admitted more openly, though, several years down the road, after the two reunited and talked about this night that we're discussing right now. Anyway, the match. As it was going on, Shawn Michaels got Bret Hart put into his own famous move, the Sharpshooter. And as Bret was on the verge of reversing out of it, Vince McMahon came out and demanded for the referee, Earl Hebner, to call for the bell and announce Shawn Michaels as the winner. Now, just as the bell was beginning to ring, Brett had broken out of the hold and was free. I have watched this footage so many times, and one thing that showed how genuine of a screw job this was by the hands of Vince is the genuine shock on the face of not only Brett Hart, but Shawn Michaels as well. They both knew he didn't tap out, and they both had no idea how this had happened at first. When they realized what had happened, they were both yelling at Vince. Let alone, Brett had hacked a huge loogie right in the face of Vince McMahon as well. Sean was escorted out of the, the arena with the title by his friend Triple H while the fans booed, tried to hit and shove Sean while he left. Brett then publicly announced on the pay-per-view that he was also going to be jumping ship by drawing in the air with his fingers the letters WCW. Again, if you don't believe me about the surprise or anything like this, and you would definitely check it out, look it up and check it on the WWE Network or something. The look of shock on their faces, the anger and fan reaction, it took a lot for the WWE, well, as they're called now, to get any love and trust back when it comes to Canada property. The Montreal Screwjob, as it was now called and will always be called, is one of the most famous moments in wrestling history. Let alone, it's also a moment that really haunts both Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. This is also what pushed for the beginning of a huge moment for Vince McMahon to be one of the biggest heels of the WWF storylines. Shortly after this happened, Vincent McMahon would release a promo to state that the company would embrace a more innovative and contemporary direction and advise for parents to give their parental discretion 
when it comes to watching the show for their kids from here on out. Vince was making his first biggest counterattack on the WCW blows at them. It would be proven as a huge point of success in the future of the WWF in a pivotal moment in the Monday Night Wars. Thank you for listening to the Sleeper Holt Podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at thesleeperhold.com to comment on episodes, read our blog, for information about the quarterly charity, and more. See you in two weeks.